Um, I don't know if you have the outline pulled up, but I'll kind of go by this outline on the Google Doc. I just constantly get like 300 tabs open at once. It's a problem. That happens to me periodically. I'll go down a rabbit hole of like, well, I don't want to read this article, but I'll just leave it here for later. Exactly. <laughs> and do that yeah. and I'll end up with a window with like 15 tabs and get back to it like three weeks later. And sometimes I'll be yeah. like, why do they even care so much about this story when it came out? <laughs> but it's the absolute worst when like, you lose all those tabs and you can't get them back. It's like, shit, this, the, the meaning of the universe could have been held within those tabs and now I've lost. Them. Yeah, I know, right? There could have been like the episode on the tabs. Welcome to Pod Me Us, examining the crisis of modern neoliberal capitalism from a socialist perspective as we transition towards an increasingly podcast-based economy. Is there anything going on here in Los Estados Unidos lately? Trump's still whining. I don't know, man. There was that leaked clip of Biden that came out talking with these civil rights leaders. Did you hear that? Where he's just I being did. he's just being very openly dismissive and really making it clear that he's not going to be inclined to do shit for anyone. Yeah, I mean, he's couching his position in this sort of law is the law, not going to exceed my mandate. It's wrong to exceed one's mandate or whatever kind of argument, but. It's very transparent. I mean, aggressive executive action, I think, is just part of any administration. It's a matter of to what ends you're doing it. Biden's like, listen up, Mac and Jack. Like Max and Jack's out there. <laughs> it's an historic moment for representation of people named Mac and Jack in our country. Oh, geez. I mean, Biden's just shouting them out every day, just about all your Macs. And Mac is really important. He makes those trucks. My favorite Bidenism, which I guess if they put it on a shirt or a hat, maybe I'd forgive them a bit, is that time he was at a rally. I think I know the one you're about to yes. talk about. Yes, he was at a town hall and the older guy like asked him a question that was, I don't know, questioning his record correctly. And Biden just gets immediately flustered and says, listen, fat. He's referring to the guy as fat, as if you'd say dude or like, hey, son, like, hey, fat, listen up. Yeah, I love it. He can't even be bothered to like come up with like an insult. It's just listen here, fat, like an actual like so name to call that, him. That's so you know? much more hurtful. That's like the real distinction, I think, in some ways between Trump and Biden is just like Biden is further along in terms of middle decay. Like he's still an asshole. And like, he's still just a totally dismissive, like arrogant guy. But whereas like Trump could be bothered to like come up with these great names, like little Marco or low energy Jeb or whatever it was with Biden. It's just like, listen up, fat. I mean, if you listen to this clip. Sleepy Joe. Yeah. It's this totally dismissive tone that he has in this clip. But well, we've seen so much change in our lives. As far as Biden's concerned, it's like, well, you can't be openly discriminatory anymore. Like, And then I just love what he says. This is Biden. He says, what I done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Let's get something straight. You shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Okay? Number one. Which sounds word for word like something Trump would say. Yes! It's exactly absolutely. something he would say. It's like, what more do you want? And then he says that he is like, he's talked about restoring the soul of the nation. I'm the only person who's ever run on three platforms. One was on restoring the soul of this country. Which, whatever the fuck that means. Ice cream every Sunday with Joe via Zoom. That was the primary, like, demand of Black Lives Matter, right? We need the soul restoration. No, uh, I don't know. Biden's, you know, Biden's time? like, you all, you people, all, you like soul, right? Always singing that soul music. Yeah. 
when I said restoring the soul of the nation. Restoring the soul. <laughs> what did you think I meant? He's like, yeah, that plays with this crowd, right? I, I thought the same thing. And I think with both of them, like with Biden, it's that he's declined mentally, definitely. I mean, you can see an interview with him in 2016. Have you seen that interview with him where they're talking to him about the Democratic primary? Like, watching that video you see how he's just a totally different person like his whole look is just literally more lively and so that's why his speeches suck and he might launch into something like that with trump is because it's a mixture of that and that he just literally thinks that everything is absolutely the best because it's his and everything yeah trump is just his personality is just more of an asshole but also i mean it's like i think with both of them it's this boomer dismissiveness i mean they just don't care it's like they've got theirs and they've seen a lot change superficially in their lifetimes and they're like it's like what more do you want they don't yeah, just, I mean, like uh, they don't really don't understand what things are like for most people in this country yeah i mean with biden he definitely gave us a piece of his mind he gave that now infamous quote where he's saying about young people today, you know, who, who were talking about all these challenges. He said, like, give me a break. And everyone laughed. And he's like, I have no empathy. I have no empathy. Do you remember that? I remember that. Yeah. It's amazing. Doing his best, uh, John Stossel. Give me a break. And then there's the equally infamous nothing will fundamentally change line that mm -hmm. by that point he was already campaigning and this was a meeting with donors. And in both those cases, I think you got a just frank sense of who he was, just pure distilled Biden. Yeah, he still usually has the sense to like keep his stuff behind closed doors. But, you know, maybe as he like continues to mentally decline, I mean, I don't know. You got to enjoy this stuff, right? I mean, you got to laugh at it occasionally. And maybe we'll get more to laugh at as time goes on. I, I want to talk about this a little more, just in terms of like, who do you think would be taking over some of Biden's workload? Which I think it's fair to talk about it as like, yeah, he's not really up for this kind of job. I mean, if you look at historical presidents, I mean, the job description is fairly flexible. I mean, you can be like a Ronald Reagan and just be totally checked out and have other people do all the work. And like, I think that's Absolutely. what we're going to see. He's, he's bringing on board people like Neera Tanton. And at this point, point they're fairly merged like the democratic establishment and kind of like the business and like silicon valley establishment it's like obama deferred to these people a fair amount you know culturally this is who the democratic party is aligned with it's the silicon valley like capitalist types intersectional imperialism and republicans are the less woke sector of capital and, and big business yeah all you can hear these days is how diverse joe biden's cabinet is right and they mean purely along race and sex lines not class not perspective you got yeah very diverse you have people from uber you have people from lyft there's this like famous uh comment online some trumper was just lamenting all of this and you know how you got all these marxist big businesses because they support the democrats and someone was trolling them and they were like I think we have no choice at this point except to nationalize all industry. The Marxist ride is just too deep. And this Trumper was like, yeah, I think you're right, actually. That's what we're going to have to do. So implementing a nationalization of industry to own the lips. That's like an Aikido judo throw. Of like just getting this guy to throw all his crazy anti-left energy into the ultimate left project. That's like a duck season, rabbit season. Yeah. <laughs> <Very impressive. laughs> exactly. Right.
feel like I, I have a deeper voice in the morning. Deep, deeper voice. <laughs> swing low, swing, swing low. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm actually in tune necessarily. I can sing all of a sudden. I feel like baritones get away with a lot because like the sounds are so low that it's hard to tell the tune. I thought you were gonna say it's like they can say whatever they want just because like voice <laughs> sounds sexy when you're deep. Like uh, Irish are problematic. <laughs> you know, if AOC had that kind of voice, she'd have her committee seats. You'd have gravitas. Henry Cuellar would have thought twice of coming out so strong against her and everything. So what prompted this was this argument on my Facebook page. We won't name, we'll, we'll uh, use a pseudonym here. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to be that petty. That will be edited, uh, I think. I don't know. Edited, edited. He's not asking for this. He can go start a podcast and then have a response. The thing about our podcast is we're never going to like sell out just to please our listeners because we barely have any. So you know you're getting the truth. (laughs) So you know you're getting the real deal. No, honestly, I'm like very proud of our episodes and I'm hoping this takes off and that people like discover them. You know, when I find a new podcast, I look into their back catalog and, you know, I'm hoping that people do the same with us and see the interesting and insightful interviews we've already done. Also discover this this discussion about, about AOC and her position. So yeah, lay out what you think. Let's take turns on this in terms of where things stand and what we think should be done at this point. Because frankly, I'm at a loss a bit, but I'll get to that. You go first. There is a battle royale in the podcast world now between, I guess, Jimmy Dore and Sam Cedar. But the question is over this. Jimmy Dore has put out this demand, has gotten people on board. Some people on board with this idea that AOC should withhold her vote for Pelosi as House Speaker in return for some kind of... um, Concession of some kind. Yeah, yeah, or specifically that there should be a vote brought to the floor, a full House vote on Medicare for all. And, you know, Dora is saying that uh, she should withhold that vote unless they get that. She and a few other progressives, she could get a few progressives together. It's Because the way the the House Speaker spoke is by a majority of the full House, so not the show, like the full like membership of the House of Representatives. And you need at least a full half of that, which is 218. And Democrats like majority is like so small. She would need just a small handful of progressives to break ranks, less than 10 to just like they could vote present or they could vote for someone else. If Pelosi doesn't get 218 votes, they have to keep holding the vote again until someone gets 218. And so this is an opportunity to gum up the works, AOC and, and, you know, some progressives in the party. I think they could really like craft a narrative here. They could say Biden won because of us. I mean, of course, it was a fairly close election you could blame or you could give any number of factors credit, but you could say Biden won for us because of progressive activists who pounded the pavement in Minnesota and Michigan and other states. And and, and they could say that they could say that we're going to get some concession and we're not going to vote for you or anyone else or speaker until you give us A or B or C or A, B and C. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. I think the, the Sam Cedar side of it, giving Jimmy Dore credit for the idea. I think the disagreement is on whether it should be Medicare for all, the thing that is put on the table as something they want, the vote for Medicare for all, because AOC went into detail about this in her Intercept interview that 
there, there are a lot of obstacles and challenges and just inconveniences as to why it just wouldn't like it wouldn't pass no matter what right even if it passed it would be symbolic and beyond that you have a lot of people we already have like a running list of who has endorsed the bill so that gives us a sense what already is on board and even beyond that since at this point it would end up on mcconnell's desk if it passed, it, let's say even if it did really, if we're talking about it passing in the house, but there are a lot of people who would be happy to give a symbolic vote for Medicare for all because they know it's going to die in the Senate anyway. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what the Republicans did in terms of trying to repeal Obamacare. Remember when they like voted to repeal it like some absurd time, like, like dozens and dozens of times. And then once Trump got in office and they had the power to actually do something about it, they turned into the dog that caught the car. <laughs> There's this question over whether floor vote on Medicare for all is a worthy thing to gun for here to try to get a few thoughts of, about that. I, I like that you brought up the Republicans voting against Obamacare, because I do think that is kind of instructive. I mean, you're right. It's it's possible Medicare for all could pass the House now. It's possible that Dems could get control of the Senate to narrow control. If you're looking at all possible outcomes, it's possible that it could pass the House and Senate and Biden would have to veto it, which would put him in a hard spot. It probably wouldn't pass the Senate. It probably wouldn't even, well, who knows if it would come to a vote in the Senate. That's another question because the Senate is generally more conservative. But you're right. People could cast a disingenuous vote for it, knowing that it won't be Just to get law. the brownie points. Yeah, know? because at the end of the day, Biden has said that like he would veto it. He's, he doesn't support it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so a few things for that. It's so, first of all, I think there probably would be people who would vote against it. They would vote against it because for whatever reason, just because they're so ideologically opposed, just because they want to build the narrative against it. And then you have something to bludgeon them with in the midterms. They can be challenged from the left. People can say you voted against healthcare and pandemic. It becomes something you can challenge some people on. Number two, whatever happens with it in the House, it is, again, I think the narrative is at play here. And even though it didn't actually do anything, Republicans kept voting to repeal Obamacare because they wanted to send a message to their base that they wanted to repeal Obamacare, that this is that it was hated with their base. And they're like, we hear you. This is what we'd want to do. I think Democrats need to play that game. They need to like take a look at they need to like be conscious of the narrative. And I think that's why there would be opposition from Pelosi or from anyone else to bring you up for a vote because they don't want that narrative to be built, right? That Medicare for all is popular and that it is like that it's gaining support. There might be a narrative that it's gaining support within the Democratic Party if it does, even if on an insincere basis it passes. So I think it's a worthy thing. It's, you know, it helps build the narrative. It's progressives can take that vote, run with it. It can become a theme in a midterm election. And it gets Medicare for all in the news, maybe temporarily, but something you can do something with. And I think Democrats need to start paying attention to trying to like build a narrative. What do you think? I think there's something to that. When I think of that prize at stake, you know, I just think there are more immediately actionable things that could be asked for instead. I want a Medicare for all vote. I mean, I want a Medicare for all vote. I want Medicare for all passed. And I, I don't know, I, I think maybe something along the lines of substantial monthly relief, economic relief and COVID relief or a temporary or, or not Medicare for all in like the full sense, but some kind of temporary emergency measure to that effect, which then makes the idea of it on a permanent basis more palatable. 
things like that move the needle. I'm not sure. I guess the narrative side thing does move the needle in its own way. But when you look at what Republicans got for their Obamacare votes, they didn't get like they, they ginned up their base a good deal. But it there's not, I mean, they ginned up much. their base. They eventually won back the Senate. They won the presidency. Yeah, but they didn't win. It wasn't those Republicans who were holding all those votes to repeal Obamacare that won the presidency. It was an insurgent who yeah. they're still contending with now who kind of wrested it from them. So I feel like this is something that will, I don't know, it'll sort of maybe, it'll give progressives writ large maybe a, a higher standing in, in the public consciousness in terms of what you're talking about, the narrative. But I think there's maybe more concrete things that could be asked for. I do agree that some, I do agree that that the fundamental thing of AOC and a block of like-minded people withholding their vote for Pelosi on the basis of some demand is appropriate. I'm looking at this and I'm feeling like the left just needs a win and they need like a visible win here. And you're right, there's all kinds of things that they could try to get now. I mean, I think they should try to get higher cash payments to people in this pandemic. I mean, they could try to get multiple things, but you know, this is something that has become, I mean, again, I posted about this and I got 93 comments on my Facebook page. This is something that has gotten some traction I don't think it's just like a handful of people who listen to one podcaster. It's like people would like to see this. They would like to see the left flex its muscle and get something visible. And this is something that's become an issue. People dislike Pelosi. They like the idea of like forcing her to do this. And it's I was listening to that interview AOC did on Intercepted. And she's talking about things that make sense. She's talking about we got to get rid of Pago and there's all kinds of other things that need to be done. And we can do those too. But I think it's just I think this is the problem with like, this is a, a problem. This is like a liberal tendency is that people want to get in the weeds and they want to say, oh, yeah, well, we actually need to do this. And we need to do that. And like, maybe it's true, but you also have to like build a movement. And Bernie lost the primary. AOC got shut out of again, of a, of a chair position on a committee in the House. We're yeah, just racking up all these losses on the left. This is something like highly visible and it'll give people a sense of power. It give people a sense of, well, we did this, we demanded it and it happened. AOC listened to us. And that's really important. If people feel like they're not being listened to and they can't get what they want and there's no point in even trying, like they're going to give up and the movement's going to die. I think that yeah. there probably was some value in like Republicans that's for their movement. Nice. Yeah, for their, I think there was some value for Republicans, their movement holding all those votes because it got people engaged. It made people feel like, okay, well, they're doing what we, they're listening to us. And that's like very important. I mean, especially for the left. It's that's why people um, get involved in politics is because they feel like they can have power and they're being listened to. So I think what you just brought up in terms of Pago is probably even a more ripe target for an exchange with a Pelosi vote than Medicare for all, because it is like a procedural rule Pelosi put in place right? As Speaker of the House, totally unprompted, not from pressure from Republicans or anything like that, because that is what she believes and what she thinks, yeah. which is totally absurd. For those who don't know, I mean, I think our audience is probably already political junkies, but just to give a little bit of background here, Paygo is this, it's not an app or whatever the fuck sounds like one. It's uh, this rule that Nancy Pelosi put in that like whatever new program or 
or a law you pass that, that, that creates some kind of action that requires resources, you have to figure out the funding in the bill. You have to either levy a tax to pay for it or, or find a cut somewhere else where in some other program where those funds can then go to this thing. Basically stops any bill, including Medicare for All, in its tracks. It just flies in the face of the way the United States operates in a budgetary manner. Like We're not a household with a balance sheet in a traditional sense. We are a, a large country that has the world's reserve currency and can print its own money. A lot of what we choose to spend our money on is a matter of political will, not economic feasibility. I'll and point out that military spending is never held to this, you know, standard. exactly. There's exactly. always as much military and they don't have a problem with it passing. I mean, whatever the Pentagon asked for. A few trillion so. dollars for the F-35 plan. Yeah. So I think that's, years. I think yeah. that's, there are a lot of people who understand this, who the arguments around Pago and the way I see it, it's the left can ask for multiple things here they can and they should i think it's like a good opportunity so and i think, think pago is good because i think outside of people like you and me people don't know that pago is there yeah. ready like like a fucking like a guillotine ready to fall on any of the priorities that we want to see so she could so in in making the demand on pago i think it would get into the broader public concept like well what is pago wait nancy i don't know if it's ever going to be sexy enough to get like much coverage on like cnn i mean there will be people will be reported on some places and and people who are into that kind of thing will read about it. and for a lot of other people it will seem like you know inside baseball so I think it's that's something good to ask for. I think you need a combination of that and some like highly visible like victories. Like yeah, something something sexy, yeah. something <laughs> that will get everyone's like attention and say, oh, well, they forced Pelosi to do this. Or maybe it's like they ultimately like force Pelosi out of the speakership. And yeah, if else. she had any honestly, if she had any sense of responsibility, she would have resigned by now. Well, it's no, she doesn't care. And it's Democrats. It's just a big club of like narcissists who never want to be held accountable and want to get up and like make their speeches in the house. And I worry like AOC is getting sucked into that. Like she's just, she's like, it's, she's getting caught up in this inside baseball stuff. Like I worry Bernie she's hurts. like, I worry she's taking too much advice from Bernie because Bernie, you have to remember Bernie came into the house, I think it was late eighties, early nineties. And for a long time, he was seen as like very marginal. You know, there's video of him giving speeches before empty house floors. And finally the narrative is he decided to start getting along with, with people better. And he was able to get amendments in the bills and some kind of like small things through the back door. I worry that like AOC is going that route and she doesn't need to. Like she's not early 90s Bernie Sanders. It's like people know about her. She has this celebrity stature. She has this large Twitter following and she can really use that. She can go beyond politics as normal in the way that people hoped Obama would do, right? Because he had this massive following in 2008 and people hoped he would hold rallies and use his email list and like really leverage that. Yeah, organizing for America. Power, part, yeah. yeah. People hoped he would leverage that activist power. I don't see AOC doing that it's like she can like you know that's she true can, yes she can uh, tweet that, that much i agree yeah. she can like tweet something and say everyone should call pelosi about this and like her phone be ringing off the hook for like days and it's i mean i'm not or she could hold rallies there's all kinds of things she could do i feel like she's getting sucked into this inside baseball and she's like well we got to focus on these little things what's missing on the left is a sense of like narrative building and movement building because I think this is a fundamental difference between like 
Republican, between conservatives and liberals, and a lot of self-proclaimed socialists are kind of just like passively accepting this kind of liberal framing. This kind of liberal sense is that like, well, they're the smart ones, which isn't hard to be smarter than the Republicans, but they're like, oh, we're the smart ones. And we have to look at oh, what really needs to be done here behind the scenes. And it's not sexy, but we're going to fall on our sword and do these like things that don't get much attention because they're the right things. And no, it's like they should do something every once in a while that plays into people's like sort of libidinal like want in the same that Republicans do all the time. But it's just the way that these parties are, it's like, well, the Democrats are the party of noble self-sacrifice. They're the party of like noble self-sacrifice, but they're comfortable with their position as critics of the system. And they keep getting to be critics and they give their little West Wing type speeches and they're comfortable with that, but they don't know how to actually like appeal to people on a base level in the way yeah, that re Republicans do. Republicans are, Republicans we talked about this before, like in an emotional car, way. And, yeah, Republicans are driving the car and Democrats by and large are the grandma in the back seat telling them to slow down. They have no inclination or will to take the wheel, it seems. The Democrats it's, are a foil, at least the leadership is. AOC has has a, a, a soul to embody and, and the progressive wing that is around her does. There is a... Uh, Kind of famous, you know, Simpsons meme. There's a scene in the Simpsons where they cut to the Democratic National Convention and there's a big banner that says we hate life and ourselves. Like it's really, it's like if you're a Democrat, if you're a Democratic politician, it's you're a Democrat because you had some sense of idealism or else you would just be a Republican at this point. And the Democrats, I mean, policy wise, a lot of them are like Republicans. But these are people who had some sense of like idealism and they sold it out along the way. They convinced themselves, well, it's unrealistic. You have to make these sacrifices. This is the way the game is played. And so a part of them like hates themselves because on some level they know they're selling out. But they also like hate their base because they think their base are these yeah. naive. They think their base are these like naive people and they should wise up like they have. And so their whole life is like defined by like making these sacrifices and to the altar of their opposition. That's the story of any like moderate Democrat now is that they accepted at some point they have to like make concessions and they like gave up their idealism. And that's what Democrats do. And again, they just define themselves as being the smart ones, which is like, again, not hard compared to the Republicans. And so they love, they live like for this inside baseball shit. They live to like be these self-sacrificing, oh, we got to focus on Pago and only Pago now. And even though it's not going to get much attention and no, it's like exactly the wrong instinct, but it's like this learned helplessness and these like self-defeating instincts that I think Democrats and liberals in general have just developed. I don't think that being well-versed and able to manipulate the details of the Democratic Party is necessarily a distraction from substantive action. I think in that interview with AOC on The Intercept, you know, it was really rough in terms of, I mean, not just what she was saying, but her tone of voice was, I want to be like the body language analyzer on MSNBC and everything. Yeah. But she says that she's, that she's at a loss and seriously disappointed and... It doesn't sound like she's just saying that. Like, she sounds like someone who's under the gun, like they're behind on their rent or in some like really serious way. There was really a desperation in her tone. And I think that 
I think what it, what it makes me want to do is like call her office and just be like, I do. I just want to let AOC know that like that we're with her or whatever. This like, has been it, reported before, like how disenchanted she is with things. And it's like, yeah, I understand that. I, you know, I don't think she's having fun. And I think it is because she's like trying to like win these games that are basically unwinnable. Like there was hope that she would get this chair and it was taken away from her at the last minute. And people are saying, oh, this is Jimmy Dore's fault because he raised too much of a stink. And then AOC had to go on intercepted on this podcast and like criticize Pelosi. And that's why she didn't get her chair, which is just such weak thinking. I mean, it's like she could have lost and probably would have lost that chair for any number of reasons anyway, because it's like all the people that were voting on it were just these corporatists with oil and gas money. But yeah, she should be rallying your base to help achieve things. But instead, she is like being sucked into trying to play this like inside baseball game, which is well, not I mean, the strength of the left. The strength of the left is their movement. To a certain extent, that is what she's hired to do. I mean, she is hired. You're right. I agree with like her upping the popular side of her politics, but she is also there to be in the room for the rest of us you know what i mean and to know what's going on and to learn how to make the tweaks and and play that game as well and i think she's learning how difficult that is and yeah i'm hoping that she will come to the realization that you're describing of leaning back on those uh, on the popular politics that got her where she is because i think people would be there for her i think they really would be i think if she and jamal bowman and rashida talib and bernie sanders if they all decided to do if they all said come with us to the steps of congress or whatever you know what i mean if they did something like that i think the turnout would be big i would go would fucking go i think a lot of people would fucking go especially this time where you know everything's just getting that much more desperate i mean i think there's a lack of not just with her but on the left it's like there's a lack of like i don't know creativity maybe and you know i think we got to look at new ways and it's not just the ways that have worked in the past we got to look at new ways to do things and it's not going to necessarily be the things that have been done in the past i mean it's like the system has evolved to where it can just like absorb i mean things like protests at this point it's well the police yeah it can create feedback loops to vent off that energy and the police you know it's like they corral people they don't let it get too out of hand and it's like that was something that worked well I guess it has worked well in the past, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It's like, I think we need to be creative and think of new ways to really kind of rattle the cage and get attention and build the movement. Yeah. But again, there is just, I should have made this point earlier. Maybe I'll edit it there, but it's, there's just such this obsession with smartness and intelligence with the Democrats. I think that's what drives this. It's like people just have this like knee jerk reaction to just like hate Jimmy Dore. Because it's, oh, like he's a simpleton, like he's gotten things wrong and he's like too much emotion. He's too much feeling over facts. Maybe he is sometimes, but I mean, he still gets a lot right. I mean, from what I can tell, just based on instinct. And But I think it's, it's this liberal notion. It's of wanting to be smarter, not even of like, first and foremost, we get things done, but just wanting to be the smart ones, wanting to feel smarter than everyone else, which I think like, the, kind of drives some of this. I have my issues with 
Jimmy Dore. I think the most value he's had is... I mean, he has uh, on genuine radicals, Abby Martin, and, you know, yeah, has yeah, dances no, know, on things I, like I Venezuela and some other right, things. Right, right, right. Yeah, I know, I know. And there, there's a lot of stuff that I've seen him cover that, that has gotten ignored elsewhere, and he's had even guests. I mean, he's had my guru, Thomas Frank, on his show right. a couple of times. And uh, Guru, I think Guru is more of a personal relationship that I'm making it sound that I have with Thomas Frank. Me and Thomas Frank don't know each other. I'm just obsessed with his work. Don't do like yoga together or whatever? No, <laughs> no, we don't sit in a room with a singing bowl and incense together. No. Speaking of liberal, I, I don't know, preoccupations. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Those kinds of activities are things that Thomas Frank wouldn't be engaging in anyway. And that's part of why I love him. But no, so all this to say that no, Jimmy Dore, I think the thing he was rightest about that he needs more credit for in retrospect is the need to take an overtly oppositional confrontational stand with democratic leadership because right. democratic leadership obama to schumer to pelosi anyone else in that that really deeply entrenched beltway circle it seems like their main focus is to make sure that their brand of quote unquote leftism is the absolute limit the dam like the wall where anything beyond that stops like they are there to represent what is acceptable as far as leftism and everything beyond it is just not and hardly go a day without criticizing without shaming going after figures who are farther to the left of them in some way considering them pollyannish or unrealistic in one way or another it has to stop because it, it, it's and it's not just that's the way they think that like that's just sort of their natural ideology it's really that they're they're in a very real sense part of the same team as far as Republicans go. They don't have enough of a problem with huge tax cuts. And they have a very big problem with social spending that materially improves people's lives who need it the most. I mean, Paygo is the ultimate example of that. Again, this was something that Nancy Pelosi did unprompted by anyone because it's what she believes and wants. And that is a very Republican thing to believe and want. And so we need to start getting real about what changing that kind of party from the inside looks like right. or what pressuring it from the outside with a new people's party looks like. And so all this to say that Jimmy Dore, people have uh, been upset with how aggressive he has been towards them. But in retrospect, he's had a he's had a track record of years of speaking very aggressively towards them. And increasingly, it seems warranted. So even if you don't want to speak as aggressively as Jimmy Dore, you need to think I, th I think there's something to his to it that you should take. Yeah, I think that's why this whole saga is kind of instructive, because I mean, again, it's like we we're having this argument. I was having this argument online with people and they're people who think that like the problem here is Jimmy Dore. It's like AOC didn't get her chair because of Jimmy Dore, which no, I think that's is just that is, yeah, that is just like such uh, weak like counterproductive thinking it's oh well we talked too loudly about what we wanted and which is like you're never going to get anywhere if you can be just like cowed like that i mean there are all kinds of structural yeah, that's, that, problems that's the word here. helplessness that we're opposing yeah. right there saying that you shouldn't speak loudly about about what you actually want and everything. right that's and it's and the problem is really deep because there were multiple people who voted against aoc for this chair there were people that people like 45 tied, to 15 or something yeah people blatantly tied to the oil and gas industry and this cooler 
from Texas saying that basically that AOC should know her place. She hasn't been here long enough. She shouldn't be challenging people. And these people have to be dealt with. Did and you can't do that was... if you're too worried about, if you're too worried about sounding too much like Jimmy Dore, if you're fundamentally worried about like, I don't know, like, like watching every word you say and having to have some kind of deference to people like Nancy Pelosi or anyone else. Yeah, I mean, she wanted these seats once she started. And according to that American Prospect uh, article by Alexander, Salmon that details this saga. I think it's called The Establishment Strikes Back. I recommend anyone listening to check it out because it kind of details exactly the process that went down. She wanted these seats when she started and they're like, you're a freshman, you can't get them. She was like, okay, well, I'll come back. I'll come back next time. I'll, I'll come back next time and it'll work. It's not because you were a freshman. It's because you're you. It's because you're AOC, the Democratic Socialist from the Bronx. They don't want that person in this kind of position of control, period. They're always, gonna, they're always going to find a reason to deny power yeah, yeah. To deny like, any that, power that for the left. was a stand-in. And so we can't, like, blame ourselves. I mean, people have to understand that these are our, our enemies and they're going to try to undermine us. People like Pelosi and mostly Democrats are going to try to undermine us no matter what. And yeah, so we so, can't so, be so caught up in, like, our tone and allow us to be, like, tone police or whatever or just allow us to be cowed, like, so easily by, like, totally cynical, disingenuous people. Well, I mean, I think if we're going to move into, again, an overtly oppositional position from within the party or from an outside party that as well if it is to be successful needs a great deal of strategy and thinking but i think it's time that we acknowledge that is the place we need to go yeah I even with all the strategy and thinking it requires opposition overt opposition is the path i mean overt opposition is like good like we want to like define it's clarity, the sides. It's clarity. It's clarity. yeah and it's that's cards you know, on the table time and that's what's going to help the movement is if there is that clarity and, and people know what's going on and they could like take a side and feel confident about it like instead of just feeling like people on the quote unquote broadly defined left always feel which is that they're always going to be let down and betrayed and so yeah i mean whether it is with other third party candidates or a new party or whatever it's that's a big part of it is building the narrative and really delegitimizing this liberal opposition which which is never going to help us but just to wrap things up, I think, I guess my thoughts would be maybe uh, kind of bad reasons to take a side in politics or bad reasons to define your politics. Standing for your favorite podcast host, just because you take one person's side over the other in some like turf war between podcast hosts or just these like parasocial relationships with politicians. Like you can't be so in love with AOC and the symbolism of AOC that you're afraid to like criticize her if, if there's something she needs to be criticized over or, or tell her what you think. You know, it's like these people are supposed to work for us. And it's there is such this like parasocial relationship with politicians in our country. It's like, oh, we have to elect Hillary because she is the icon for all women in this country. And when she succeeds, I succeed. It's like, no, you succeed when like you have power and things are directly done to like really help you, not because of these symbolic victories. Well, what if I told you, John, that Joe Biden's communications team is all women? Huh? Well, now that you mentioned that. What uh, if I told you that the next head of the CIA is going to be a black Jewish guy? Huh? You're telling me that doesn't catch your fancy a little bit? No, I think we should. Yeah. I think exactly. these things, exactly. I think these things only go so no. far. I think, yeah, maybe you can say representation has some importance, but it's not everything. And Fuck it's no. used no. <laughs> It's used as a replacement for real like material victories. Yeah, it's a cudgel. It's meant to, it's meant to get people to shut up. Um, yeah. 
All right, I got to get out of here. I got to be, I have eight minutes to drive to where I need to get to. And I think Google Maps told me it's exactly that amount of time it takes, so. Godspeed. This has been a good one, this has been fun, I think. Maybe we'll try to do these off the cuff things more often. Thanks so much, Jim. Yeah, hey John, you have a good weekend, man. We'll get back in touch soon. See ya. Thank you.